And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. A few years ago, a family living in a beautiful home in West Palm Beach, uh, they were contacted by a film crew as to whether they could use their front yard to shoot an episode of a TV show. And they knew that cars would be crashing violently in front of the house and what have you. And so they said, okay. And while the house or the front yard was being destroyed, the actual owner of the home was contacted. And he called from New York wanting to know what was going on with his yard and why it was, you know, being destroyed. And it seems that the people living in the house were only tenants who had no right to allow the property to be destroyed while the cameras rolled. Now, some awful mistakes can happen when those who are tenants begin acting as if they were owners. How many of you have rental property? A few. Uh, isn't it fun to get calls from your renters? This is wrong. This is wrong. Yeah, yeah. Judges over here. No, no, no. No fun at all. Yeah, I know that feeling too. We have renters. Uh, but when somebody moves out, you know, and you do these periodic checkups, you hope they've taken care of your property, right? And the more valuable the property, the more, uh, you know, that you hope that they are taking the responsibility to, to treat it rightly, to take care of it. Can you imagine tenants in this beautiful uh, mansion who refuse to pay rent and who threaten or beat uh, uh, those that the owner sends to collect the rent? They argue, we live here. It's our house now. Well, no one making that claim would stand a chance in a court of law. The owner has the right to receive rent and to have his uh, property treated rightly. Now, follow up the challenge of the Jewish leaders to Jesus about the source of his authority. Remember last week they, they asked, who, who gave you this authority, right? By what authority do you do these things or who gave it to you, this authority? So he tells this parable about some wicked tenants of a vineyard who wrongfully, wrongfully assumed ownership of that which was not their own. It's one of only three parables that are found in all three synoptic gospels. So you got the vineyard. Do you know the other two? The sower, remember the four souls, the four, four soils throwing the seed, the sower, that one, and the little bitty mustard seed. That's, those are the three that are in all three gospels. Well, the parable answers the question that the leaders had just asked, by what authority are you doing these things? Now think about it. If God owns the vineyard and Jesus is the son and rightful heir to it, then he's acting under God's authority. The Jewish leaders have wrongly usurped the authority of God, the rightful owner. So the fundamental question that not only these Jewish leaders, but all who hear the parable need to answer is, who owns the vineyard? Who owns the vineyard? Keeping in mind the answer to that question will determine how we live. Now, since God owns the vineyard, we must live accountably to Him. Oh, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You again for this opportunity. Your Word is gracious in that it reveals You to us. It reveals ourselves to us. We get a true picture of ourselves. And so, Father, this morning we pray that You would just speak to our hearts. And, and again, that You would show us clearly, Father, without any shadow of a doubt, who the owner of the vineyard is. And because of that, it should shape our lives. So help us in that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So to understand the parable, you've got to, you first got to know who the characters are, right? When you go to a play or even watching a TV show, sometimes, you know, if it's your first time in this series or whatever, it takes a while to figure out who is what, right, and what, what role they play. Well, we've got to do that with this parable. The owner of the vineyard is God, all right? The vineyard is the nation of Israel. So when he's talking about the vineyard, he's talking about the nation. The tenant farmers, these are the religious leaders in Israel. The servants that the owner sends to collect the rent, those servants are the prophets that we see in the Old Testament. And the son or the heir of the owner, well, that's Jesus. All right, so we know who the folks are. When these Jews heard this parable, uh, that audience would have immediately thought about Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Now, it's there that Isaiah calls Israel God's vineyard. And he warns in that passage that he would lay Israel waste because it only produced worthless grapes. Well, Jesus shows that God expects fruit from the vineyard. But he emphasizes God's great patience and love in sending many messengers and finally his beloved son. Now, if his people produce no fruit and they kill his son, they will face his certain judgment. But even though they kill the son, he will triumph by becoming the chief cornerstone. Now, these things apply not only to ancient Israel, but also to us, whom God, as Paul says, has graciously grafted into the vine. So the parable reveals five things about God and those who profess to be his people. Number one, God expects fruit from his people. It's that simple. Why do you, go to the, why do you bother uh, planting a vineyard unless you expect fruit? It was a common arrangement for an owner to rent out his vineyard to tenant farmers who would pay him a percentage of the crop each year. So that at the proper time, the owner rightfully sent a servant to collect what the, what the farmers owed him. Now, we would misunderstand this parable if we thought of these tenant farmers as poor sharecroppers who were being abused by a demanding owner. That's not the case. Rather, they were greatly privileged to be able to work in the owner's vineyard. They didn't have to plant it. The owner did that. They simply entered into the vineyard where they could make a sufficient living for them and their families. The owner wasn't a greedy tyrant who stood over them with a whip, driving them mercilessly. He freely entrusted the vineyard to them, and he let them work it as they saw fit. But for this privilege, they owed him a certain amount of fruit each year. Well, even so... God had done everything to provide for Israel, his vineyard. He drove out the wicked nations and gave Palestine to his chosen people. He protected them from fierce nations all around them. He entrusted his people with leaders who, if they had been faithful, would have harvested a bumper crop. You see, Israel should have been a light to the nations, pointing them to God who so richly supplied their needs. God, who provided so abundant, abundantly for his vineyard, he had every right to expect fruit. So it is with us. 
We are greatly privileged in that God has given us His Word. He has supplied us with everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's what Peter tells us. He wants us to bear the fruit of Christ-like lives so the hungry people who don't know Him will taste and see that, yes, the Lord is good. Now, we who live in America, we are perhaps the most spiritually privileged people in all of history. We have God's Word in our language. Uh, we probably have, I don't know, Tyler, 50 translations at least, you know? So it's readily accessible to us. Uh, we have an almost endless supply of helpful, readily available spiritual resources. Uh, Debbie's working on a project uh, right now through Liberty, and, and she and I spent a good deal of time working on it yesterday. She has to create a class from scratch and, uh, you know, lay out what it's all going to be, be, be about. But then she has to do at least one lesson plan from within the whole thing. So we were doing it on creation. And so she's looking around. There's quite a few different elements that you have to have in there. And so she starts looking around, and she goes, look at this. She plays this video. And I was like, wow, that was great. Five minutes later, look at this. She's playing another. If you want information, folks, not just about the Bible, about just about anything, it's out there. But particularly about Bible things, it was just unbelievable how much good resources were there just for the looking. Well, we have more leisure time than any nation in history to pursue spiritual things. We're blessed with adequate financial resources to support God's work both here and abroad. Now, with these great privileges comes the responsibility of bearing fruit for the owner of the vineyard. All of us are either living for ourselves and our own gratification, or we're living to bear fruit for the Lord Jesus. We're either laboring for what we can get out of the vineyard, or for what we can produce for the owner. Now, clearly, these wicked tenant farmers uh, they were not working for the owner, but for themselves. Now, the irony is we always find the most pleasure when we live to bear fruit for Christ and not when we live for ourselves. Uh, there's a story in, in our bread. It's about a young man who always found excuses to turn down his pastor's request that he teach a class of teenage boys. Well, finally, he admitted uh, why he didn't want to do it. He was afraid that it would cut into his time on the golf course. And he realized how self-centered that was, and he finally agreed to take on the class. Now, he worked hard at it, and within a few months, he had led six young men to Christ. On the Sunday that the sixth boy professed his faith in Christ, the pastor asked the young man, has giving up golf on Sunday been worth it? And with tears in his eyes, the young man said, my only regret is that I've waited so long to put others before myself. You see, the joy that he found in teaching that class of 13 teenage boys, six of whom he had led to the Lord, it, it far exceeded any pleasure that he'd ever experienced on the golf course. Well, God, the owner of the vineyard, he expects fruit from his people. That's point number one. But how can we be motivated to live accountably to him? Well, point two, God's great patience seen in his gracious, repeated messengers 
should motivate us to live accountably to Him. Now, at this point, the parable is not at all like real life. These wicked tenant farmers rough up that first servant that the owner sent, and they, they send him away empty-handed. Any owner wouldn't have tolerated that, right? Uh, any sensible businessman immediately would have thrown these bums out, prosecuted them legally for their negligence and abuse, and replaced them with tenants who would be more faithful in managing the vineyard. But I'm glad to say that this owner, who represents God, was not a good businessman. He sent a second slave who also was mistreated. And after two times, anyone else would say, that's it. These guys have had more than a fair chance. But this owner sends a third. And they wounded him and cast him out. Now, Jesus is simply showing us the unreasonable, illogical, superhuman patience of our gracious God. He sent his prophets to Israel over and over again looking for fruit. But the disobedient nation ignored, mistreated, and even killed some of those faithful servants. Now, it's interesting how God does this every now and again. Uh, most of you guys know I read through the Bible every year. And right now, uh, the part, and I, I'm, this year I'm using a chronological Bible. So it's going through 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles at the same time because there's an awful lot of the same material. It's not word for word, but it's the same stories, and some of it is word for word. So I'm reading, and in 2 Kings 17, 13 this last week, and 2 Chronicles 24, 19, and 36, 16, you don't have to look those up, just take my word for it. It's in there, and God says, I have sent you prophet after prophet, and you have mistreated them, and some you have killed. And I was like, well, there you go. It's right there in God's Word. Jesus knows what He's talking about here because He knows the history of Israel. So in spite of this, God kept sending them over and over and over again as a demonstration of His abundant patience and grace. So the history of Israel really reveals the tragic wickedness of the human heart. No people were as privileged by God as that covenant nation, and yet they repeatedly turned away from Him. While Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God, what was the rest of the nation doing down in the valley? They were carousing and partying around what? A golden calf. Time and again, they grumbled against God in the wilderness. That's one thing the Israelites were really good at, y'all, was grumbling. When they moved into the promised land, instead of living separately from the pagans that they drove out, they actually imitated their idolatry and their immorality. Yet, where sin abounded, as Paul says, grace superabounded from God. Far beyond any human expectations, God patiently sent prophet after prophet to warn His people to turn from their sins. Now, I say it reverently, but as a businessman, the owner of the vineyard failed. He should have thrown out these lousy tenant farmers after that first evidence of their rebellion. But thank God he's not that hard-nosed businessman. He's far more patient than we can imagine. He sends repeated messengers as simply a demonstration of his abundant patience and grace. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you should be able to look back on your life at God's extravagant patience and grace 
in His dealings with you. It ought to motivate you to serve Him more zealously. How many times I have been self-centered, living for my own aims, not to bear fruit for the Lord. And yet He always keeps sending His messengers to get me back on track. God sends us preachers who proclaim the Word uh, or the truth of His Word. He gives us the Bible which we can read for ourselves. Uh, we see many other messengers in the church, friends and, and, and others who warn us by their lives and their words, yeah, we need to be bearing fruit. God graciously sends us health problems to show us that we are frail, that, that we are really dependent on Him. Signs of aging, gray hair, loss of hair, uh, loss of youthful strength, the death of loved ones and friends to remind us that eternity really matters and it's not that far away. Now, all of these gracious messengers given over and over again, they remind us that eternity is near and that we will give an account one day. Now, God's great patience in His dealings with us should motivate us to live accordingly, uh, accountability, accountably to Him, bearing fruit with our lives. But the greatest motivation to fulfill uh, that accountable living is not the many prophets of God. It's His final messenger. That's number three. God's great love, seeing and sending His beloved Son, should motivate us to live accountably to Him. The author of Hebrews starts out his uh, epistle this way, saying that in, in, in various ways, in many and various ways in, pa in past times, God has spoken through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. So in the parable, we see that the owner had one more person to send. It was his beloved son. He said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they, will, perhaps they will respect him. Now, again, at this point, the parable is not true to reality. In reality, God doesn't wonder, uh, you know, about what he should do or what's going to be the result if he does do something. Both the father and, uh, as the next verse shows, Jesus the son, they knew uh, that he would be rejected, that he would be killed it was no surprise. But in telling the story, Jesus brings out the vineyard's quandary to show both the depth of God's amazing love and the unyielding wickedness of the human heart. The Father's love is so great that He was willing to send His beloved Son even after His servants had been so badly abused. The depravity of the human heart is seen in those who would not only disregard the Son, but kill him for their own selfish ends. Now, note that the, the claim of Jesus is rather implicit here. He stands apart from the other servants that God had sent. They were servants, but he is the beloved son. He is uniquely God's son. He is of, sa of the same substance with the Father, one with him, intimately related to him in a way that no one else is. Jesus is God in human flesh. Now, when the sun showed up, the tenant farmers assumed that the owner was dead. 
under Jewish law, property not claimed by an heir within a specific time uh, could be claimed by the first party to do so. So they greedily assume that if they get rid of the son, the property will be theirs. Now, Jesus makes clear here they didn't kill the son because of mistaken identity, but, but precisely because they recognized who he was and they wanted his inheritance for themselves. The issue was, who owns the vineyard? They didn't want to submit themselves to God's rightful ownership. They wanted to rule the vineyard. If we could grasp the infinite love of God who sent His Son to a world as corrupt as ours. Have you ever thought about all the crud that God sees in this evil world every day? Now, I'm sure Rhett can testify to this. Law enforcement officers, they see the seamy side of life more than the rest of us generally. They deal with rape, assault, murder, child abuse, on and on. They see it. Um, But God sees it all. And not just in one location at one time. He sees it all over the world all the time. He sees not only the, the sins committed outwardly, but those in the hearts of every person as well. Martin Luther, Luther once exclaimed, If I were God and the world had treated me as it had treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. I think there's times when we can all identify with those feelings. But how did God treat this evil world. Paul says that God demonstrates His love towards us, His own love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Knowing that He would bear the penalty for every sin that we would commit, Jesus was still willing to take on human flesh and come to this wicked world. Charles Wesley, he put it in a great hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Shouldst Die for Me. But the parable shows not only God's great patience and love, it also shows His righteous judgment on those who reject His Son. So number four, God's righteous judgment on those who reject His Son should motivate us to live accountably to Him. Now, this parable is a great illustration of what Paul exclaims in Romans 11, 22. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. Kindness and severity. Now, God's kindness is seen in Him sending far more servants to rebellious Israel than she ever deserved. That's kind. His severity is seen when these wicked tenant farmers kill the son. Jesus is God's final messenger, the the sum total revelation to sinful man. If we reject Him, there is no further remedy. There's nowhere else we can turn. Only judgment lies ahead. Now, Jesus pronounces the judgment that the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard, what's the vineyard? Israel will give the vineyard to others. Now that thought prompts the people to exclaim, may it never be. 
How can you say that? It shocked them to think of such a terrible thing that God would, would give Israel away, as it were. Well, that judgment took place in 70 A.D. Roman general Titus came and destroyed Jerusalem and the Jews scattered. They lost their place of privilege as God's covenant nation. God grafted in the Gentiles to accomplish His purpose, as Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul also points out that we shouldn't boast because of that. Yes, Israel and, 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 and the Gentiles are now one. We are the church, all right, but we should not boast. Paul says we should fear because God can still remove us and use some other group to fulfill His purpose. Now, the point is, if, if we who profess to be God's people live selfishly and do not bear fruit for Him, He will set us aside and He will raise up others. Now, we need to apply this not just to the church out there, but to ourselves. We miss the point if we think this parable was given to pagans. Who was it given to? Men who professed to know God. It was given to the national religious leaders of Israel. But they wrongly thought that they owned the vineyard, that they were in charge. They thought it was their ministry. They were using it for their own selfish purposes. As a result, they rejected Jesus' rightful place as the owner of the vineyard. Well, for us today, this church is not my church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not your church. It's the Lord's church. He's the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard now is the church. If He allows us to work in the vineyard, we're blessed. Any work that we do in the vineyard is not for us. It's for the owner. Now, we need to be careful because it's easy to start enjoying the grapes from the vineyard. Uh, it's, per it's personally gratifying to serve the Lord. Uh, you like the nice things that people say about you. You enjoy being used by God. You, you see fruit. And all of this is fine as long as you remember that it's His vineyard and that all that you do is for Him. But if you start serving for what you can get out of it and you drift into thinking that it's your ministry... You've just usurped the rightful place of the owner. If you keep going in that direction, he may come and remove, remove you from your place of service in the vineyard. Well, number five, God's certain final triumph in Christ should motivate us to live accountably to him. Our sin can never thwart the sovereign purposes of God. Now, Jesus he quotes from Psalm 118 here, and that's the psalm from which the people at the, uh, the triumphal entry, it's where they get their hosannas from. It's from this psalm. But Jesus uses it to show these wicked Jewish leaders that even if they kill the Messiah, God would reverse their sinful choice and make Jesus the chief cornerstone. Uh, you know the verse, um, this is the day the Lord has made. And we shall um, rejoice and be glad in it. That's Psalm 118, 24. Does anybody know what verse 23 says? It's not talking about today, y'all. Verse 23 says the one that talks about God will make the Messiah the cornerstone. 
That's the day that we rejoice in. Okay? This is the day that God has made. He's, he's made the Messiah the chief cornerstone. And let us rejoice and be glad in that day. Okay? Well, these men thought that they could get rid of the owner's son once and for all by killing him. A little did they know, although they should have, because they had this psalm for a thousand years, that God would raise up his son and install him in the chief place of honor that he fully deserves. So it's a great comfort to know that human sin can never thwart the sovereignty of God. Y'all, get, getting a good idea of what the sovereignty of God is and embracing it, uh, Spurgeon said that the sovereignty of God is the pillow that the Christian lays his head on each night. You rest in the sovereignty of God. He also says it's also the stone that crushes the heathen. That's our next verse. Now, as I said, it's a comfort to know that human sin can't, you know, throw a, a rock in the, in, in, in the works concerning the sovereignty of God. We are responsible for our sin, yet God sovereignly ordains everything that comes to pass, and He rightfully judges those who do not submit to His purposes. Proud men all the time take their stand against the Lord, His Christ, and God simply scoffs at them. He laughs at them. These wicked tenant farmers, they could kill the son, but God would raise him up to be that chief cornerstone, just as his word had prophesied. Now, verse 18 here in our passage means that if you pit yourself against the chief's cornerstone, you will lose, he will win every time. A Jewish proverb put it like this, if the stone falls on the pot... Now, keep in mind, their pots were made out of, you know, clay. They're kind of fragile. It says, if the stone falls on the pot, alas for the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, alas for the pot. You get it? The pot's never going to win. The stone's always going to win. God determined before the foundation of the world that Christ would die. Yet those who wickedly condemned and crucified Jesus in accord with God's sovereign plan, they are still responsible. God always triumphs. Those who oppose Him always lose. Now that fact should motivate us to keep on bearing fruit in His vineyard, no matter how difficult it may be or how much opposition we face. God's side will win in the end. The sad thing is, we can understand this truth and yet reject it. These men who heard this parable understood that Jesus spoke it against them. One of the other two, either Matthew or Mark, it says in there that they understood this parable was spoke against them. They knew that they were the wicked tenants in the parable. They knew that Jesus was predicting God's judgment if they continued in this course of action. Yet... They persisted in seeking ways to seize him. They feared the multitude. They should have feared God. Now, Jesus told the parable really for two main reasons. He wanted to encourage his faithful servants who get beat up and thrown out of the vineyard to keep on being faithful. He owns the vineyard, and the main thing for them is for his servants to bear fruit for him. Well, second, 
he told it to warn those who wrongly thought that they own the vineyard, that in fact they do not own it. A day is, of reckoning is coming. Well, there's just a town of Twin Lakes, Colorado, and you have to go over a little hill when you're coming in one direction, and then they, there you see the city. But as you come over this hill, right there in front of you is a police car sitting there. So everybody, whoop, hits the brakes. Uh, you know, you think you're going to get a ticket. You feel accountable. It turns out there's just a mannequin behind the wheel. It's just put there so people will whoop and slow down before they get to the community. We keep, need to keep in mind that God is not a mannequin. He's not a dummy. He is real. Jesus Christ is the rightful heir and owner of the vineyard. Either we submit to him and serve him, or we're going to face his certain judgment. If we wrongly start thinking that we own the vineyard, that stone that Jesus was talking about will fall on us and scatter us like dust. Let's pray. What a word this morning, Father. What a challenge to us to understand that, yes, we are the vineyard today of Christ, and our job is to bear fruit. So, God, I pray that you would just uh, tender our hearts towards that, help us to understand it, to embrace it, and then to be obedient. Father, we thank you uh, for what you're doing in our midst even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I just want to um, go over what we call the three circles. This is a, this is a great way to kind of share the gospel. This was really this 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 passage today is really for um, believers and those who think that they're believers, but they're not. The religious leaders of Israel they thought they had it all together. And Jesus says, "No, you don't. You have it wrong." But it's also for, you know, the, the true people of Israel to understand, yes, and the true church today, that yes, we need to be bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. Uh, as we look down to the world, one of the things that characterizes our world today is brokenness. We see it just about everywhere we look. You can't help but notice it. If you're on any media feed, if you're on the news, it doesn't matter. Uh, everywhere we look, we see a good deal of brokenness. Now, we also see some good things, don't we? Uh, we can hear, how about when you hear a little baby laugh, right? You know that's a sincere laugh when the baby is laughing because babies don't know any different. If they're laughing, it's because they think it's funny, right? There, there's, there, there is some good, this good is what I'm saying out there as well. And that's simply because we're created in the image of God, which is good. And some of that breaks through. But what we seem, see most is brokenness. And that's not how God designed this world. He designed the world perfectly sinless. And there's the key word. When Adam and Eve sinned, it changed everything. It brought brokenness into this world, even creation. Paul tells us in chapter 8 of Romans that the creation groans, as it were, for the redemption of the sons of God. It's waiting to be redeemed itself. All right, so we live in this broken world. God doesn't live, uh, well, there are various ways that we try to fix this brokenness, as it were. Uh, you name it. You've probably chased it, whether it's some sort of fame or popularity. That's a big thing today. How many likes do I have? How many followers do I have on my social media, right? 
Uh, there's all kind of ways to, to judge stuff like that. Maybe it's by um, mind-numbing drugs, alcohol, whatever. There's just all kind of things that we can chase to fill that emptiness, that brokenness within us. There's only one thing that actually works. And, and God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to live a perfect life and to die on that cross and then to be raised from the dead and ascend back into heaven. That's where he's at today. And all you have to do to partake, as, you, as, 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 it, as it were, in this gospel is to believe and repent. That's what turn is. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Believe that he, was, that he died on the cross, that he was buried and he rose again uh, according to the scriptures. Uh, that's the gospel. Believe that and you will become a child of God. And then you're on that road back to God's perfect design where you, you grow every day. You become conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're all doing if we're following Christ. And then one more thing. Uh, God tells us, hey, you've, you've experienced a little healing in your life. You're not as broken as you once were because of Christ. Go out into the world and share that good news with others. There's plenty of broken people out there who are looking. Just share the good news of Jesus with them. So that's the gospel in about a two-and-a-half-minute nutshell. I hope that you get the opportunity to use it this week and tell somebody, yeah, they say the world is broken. Say, yep, it sure is, and I know why. And tell them. Tell them. Many are going to respond. It's not up to you for them to respond. That's up to God. All right? You just be obedient, you be faithful. But there may be some of you out there who are, in fact, in that broken state. You don't know God. You've, you've never turned your life over to Him. You've never asked God to forgive you of your sins. You've never trusted in Jesus Christ for your eternity. You're still trusting in yourself. You have to set yourself aside and come to God. If that's you, I encourage you to do it today. Paul says in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 6 there that today is the day of salvation. Don't neglect it. Don't run from it. Run to it. If you're a believer, this whole message really was a lot for you. Today, the church is the vineyard, and God still expects fruit. We're to be busy about the kingdom of God. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.